I think this is common to pro- to the discipline of product management that you are sort of at the crossroads of the entire organization. It's a, it's a unique position in the sense that you're plugged in to just about everybody, every other team in the organization, sales, marketing, um, engineering, obviously, design, um, accounting, finance, um, support, training, consulting, whatever departments you have, there's some role for product management. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a roundtable discussion covering a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Your hosts, Jason Thompson, John Naran, Jen Coons, and myself, Jim Driscoll, all live in different areas of the world, but work together in the same company. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. And there we go, and we're back. And uh, Jason, we have a, uh, a special guest with us uh, today. Um, I'll tell you, I've been itching for this conversation. I'm really excited about it. Today we have uh, Ben Gaines, the group product manager at Adobe. I am I'm super excited. Um, I, I, I may even say giddy. I, I, I'm awesome. It's awesome that we have you on, Ben. So um, I, I know that uh, we have some really good conversations and you've got a huge following on Twitter that people love to hear from you. So I, I'm excited to have you on and uh, looking forward to our chat today. I'm super excited as well, guys. Thanks for having me. I this is I've wanted to be on the Thirty Three Sticks podcast for months, and uh, we're, we're, we finally made it happen. So I'm I'm pumped to be here as well. Um, I don't I do have to challenge one thing though, Jason. I I the the follower numbers may be reasonably high, but I honestly think that three quarters of them have me muted at this point. So um, I don't know. I don't know if people actually want to hear from me or if they're just like, they know that I'm sensitive and if they unfollow me, I'll, I'll cry about it. I, I think with you though, that they just mute during certain times of the year when you get sports heavy and, and they still want your other stuff. So, so maybe it's not even like fully muting you. They just have some filters to filter out the sports ball. But uh, me on the other hand, I, I tend to, uh, just make people mad. And so I think I have that luxury where they just unfollow me. So I get a better view of uh, what's happening there, but you do, you have a, you have a huge audience and um, you have a lot, whether you are going to say it or not, I'll say it for you. You have a lot of uh, awesome knowledge to, to share with us. And if nothing more, just kind of your experience, you've had a great experience. So maybe we start there. Um, If you want to kind of give us the quick background on who Ben is for anybody that may be listening that doesn't know your full story you and i met when i think you were doing support at at was it still yeah. Omniture at the time it was still Omniture, and and here in walks this uh, adonis of a man in wind pants uh and it was jason thompson no i i i mean i i do <laughs> i do like i remember we we didn't work that closely together in fact i don't know if we actually formally met um when we, when you were a consultant at Omniture and I was in, in tech support and that was like my first real job. Um, I had, I had worked for a startup, um, in the area before that, but it was, it, it, it did lead to Omniture and I, it was my, it was actually my first experience with digital analytics. Um, but, but Omniture was really where I, I got my start and you had been a consultant for at least a couple of years at that point, I think. And, um, 
and uh, I, you know, I, I sort of knew you, but didn't really know you. And then it was when I was, I kind of moved up through the support organization and uh, had the opportunity to be the face of the company on social media for support questions and just general sort of product and industry conversation, which was an awesome experience and got to know so many people that have become good friends uh, over the years. And you're one of those. Uh, I think you uh, started out complaining because uh, we were latent. Our data was latent. It was probably January 20 or 2009. I think we had a big latency fiasco, um, which, you know, uh, there, there were a number of complaints. I think we actually got written up even in, uh, in, was it For- Forbes or one of those magazines? Anyway, in that context, you and I got to know each other and uh, went to went to lunch at um, Smoking Apple Barbecue in Orem, Utah, and that was the first time first time we ever really conversed, and and we've become great friends. So, um, and and I. Uh, did that? Did the social media thing? Um, got to know a bunch of people, made a bunch of great friends, and then had an opportunity to move into product management, which had always been what I really wanted to do to to be able to um, affect the product and and uh, help deliver value to customers directly in the product. and And did that in 2010. And I've been, um, except for a about eight months that I was gone when I went to work for ESPN as an analyst, I've been in product management at Adobe ever since, working on analytics. So that's my that's my story. So I I think uh, I think we'd be amiss if we didn't take a small tangent to talk about the social piece before we go um, more in depth into into product management because that that to me was a, a real game changer and I and I don't really still know if I know like what what the uh, driver was to move you into that role um, but that was at a time where. I don't think a lot of companies were even thinking about using social for support. And if they were, it was very vanilla. There wasn't a real face behind it. And you really changed the game as far as putting a personality behind it and making it real. Um, so would love to just talk about that briefly. One, I'm interested in what what caused that to happen at, at Omniture. And what was the push? Was it something that you were passionate about to saying, I, I want to put a face behind this, that we're not just some nameless, faceless organization that, you know, we have, we have feelings and emotions and that's okay to share that on social. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to ruin some of the legend. Probably it was not at all driven by me. What I had done, I think like the, the thing that, that, um, I, you know, you know, me, I'm, super self-deprecating and it's hard for me to, to like acknowledge my talents, but I will acknowledge that one thing that I, I think I had done really well in support was um, balancing sort of personality with, with, I don't want to say PR, but like I had a, I had a decent sense of how to explain complex things to, to our customers when they were having a difficult issue um, and, and like had a, a decent ability to, uh, kind of go back and give some background. Here's how the product works. Here's why you're seeing what you're seeing, and and kind of make them make them feel good about that. Even if it was like, even if ultimately the issue was you know working as designed, or they didn't didn't like the answer. And so, I think that that had kind of become part of my little nascent brand internally. And the decision to put to put us out there on social media um, came from. I think primarily from uh, Brian Watkins, who you remember, uh, or, you know, not super early Omniture uh, guy, but ran social media for Omniture 
in about 2008 through about 2010, um, a little bit after the the Adobe acquisition. And um, I think he had just been like, he, he just, he had been looking at what people were saying about the company and about the product and realizing that we just didn't have anyone who was really tasked with that. Um, you know, there were some people like this was back when Adam Greco was at Omniture and he was out there doing some of this, but for the specifically for the support questions, for the things that are that were much more sort of in the weeds with the product. There wasn't anyone who was out on Twitter or Yahoo. The Yahoo group for for digital analytics was still a thing back then. Um, this was obviously pre Slack. So, um, you know, we just we were. Brian just wanted someone who could be out there monitoring and it, it wasn't, it didn't, we didn't intend for it to be a full-time job and it never really was. Like I, I was at the time still doing a little bit of support and doing some technical writing and documentation. Um, but it quickly became apparent that there was a ton of conversation, not just about Omniture and about the product, but about the industry that we needed to be a part of and, and needed to have a voice in. And so I, kind of expanded it. And Brian was super supportive. He, he totally got like the great thing about Brian was that he, he just intuitively understood that social media should be about genuineness and about personality. And and you shouldn't like the brands that do this best, as you pointed out, are the ones that, that are not afraid to, to make a, a joke, you know, to, to put a little bit of personality in their responses. And so he, was totally on board with that, encouraged me to be, to be myself, to, to speak in my own voice. Um, and that led to some, like, that's probably how I became friends with people like you and Rudy Shumpert. Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on Eric Matisoff, so on and so forth. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And that's, that's how it happened. Like, it was just like, Hey, can you just check in on Twitter a few times a day and respond to these Yahoo groups? And then it just kind of snowballed as the industry grew and as, as that, as that was, um, you know, as we were finding success in, in doing that and in resolving people's concerns and questions. And so it became a bigger and bigger thing. And that's really how I got to know the industry beyond just the Omniture product set. And without that time in my career, there's no way I would be in product management. It, 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 it allowed me to show up in product management with an understanding of the industry that I wouldn't have had uh, if I was just coming from, if I had just been coming from support. So did that, uh, that time doing the social thing, did that kind of make you want to go into product management? Where did the kind of idea for that come from? Or did you always know that you wanted to be in product management? Honestly, the thing with product management, uh, it's a great question. It, it, definitely helped. Like I, I was out there seeing, we started to have more product managers out there, um, contributing and, and, you know, not to, not to use too many names that your, your listeners may not know, but like Jeff Jordan, um, who, who was on the Adobe analytics product management team at the time had just like this amazing social voice. And, um, and he was out there, you know, interacting a little bit with customers and it did make me want to like the things he was talking about were things that were on the roadmap or he was, you know, teasing this feature or that improvement. And, and that did kind of stoke my, my fire for being in product management, but the product management thing honestly came from working with our product management team um, from my earliest days in support at Omniture. Um, people like Brett Gunderson, um, who, who you know, I think is you know reasonably well known in the industry. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the you know Bill Ingram, like 
I, I observing them and as they would train us on new functionality that was coming out, I just thought these guys get to be product experts. They get to have a real influence on the value that we're providing to customers. Like they can, they're the ones who can take an idea or a customer problem and turn it into a solution in the product. And that just always appealed to me. Um, I, I don't think of myself as a very, very creative person, but I, I viewed it as maybe an avenue where I could contribute a little bit creatively um, within within my skill set. Like I'm never going to be a UX designer because I just don't have I just don't have that skill set. But I could see a path from very early in my career to developing some of the skills that I would need in product management. And and as a side note, you you do have a lot of creativity because you're a, a pretty good piano player and. And a, de- oh, and a decent and a decent singer. So I know you've got creativity. So Jason, no, Jason. So Jason's saying this. You've never heard me play piano. Before. I have. I have. I have. You. You shared a recording playing uh, Piano Man, I believe. Oh, okay. All right. I did. I might have tweeted out a recording. Yeah. Like my one talent. My one talent in life is that I play. I can play Piano Man on piano while while. So I have like a harmonica brace that goes around my neck. And so I can play the harmonica part uh, that uh, I, th- I think it's Billy Joel that plays both when he plays piano man. I, I actually don't, I've been, I've seen him in concert, but I, I can't remember anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Like that's to me, to me, that's not creative per se. That's just like, I learned the music at one point and I, I know how to, I know how to parrot it back. Mm. Okay. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Like if I was writing my own music, we can. All right. I mean, I, I, I don't have any kind of like, uh, ability to understand music at at that level, but I, I like to play the bass. I, I enjoy playing the piano a lot more. So that's kind of my creative outlooks. I want to be able to paint and draw and I want to be a visual creative person and I'm just not. So my, my creative outlook is music. So what's, what's interesting about that, Jason, is that you say you want to be a visual creative person and you're not, and you might not be like, I'm not going to try to convince you, you have that skill, but you're like, when I think about Jason and creativity, food comes to mind. Like you're just like, you're constantly just creating recipes out of uh, what you've got around the house. Or it seems like, I mean, maybe you're, I don't know, who knows, maybe you're following a recipe guide, but it seems like you're just, you're able to just synthesize recipes and that's, like that's a that's a creative skill I would I would kill for. We were just talking about this uh, uh, with my family the other day that I don't have like I'm really good at following a recipe, but I'm I'm friendly envious of your of your cooking skills. Fair enough, and and we'll get back on track here. But I also I do want to mention that um, as part of your self deprecating nature that that you have some amazing culinary skills because Ben at one time made me these uh, grilled pork belly nuggets of some amazing goodness that I, I still crave. So you, you do have some uh, strong skills as well. I'm not sure I remember that. What was you, got, you, got this, you got the little indoor grill and you put the meats on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Korean barbecue, yeah. Akiniku. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. Okay. Valley from Harmon's. Yes, it, was, it is good. It was, that is good. It was fantastic. Indeed. So, okay. So, so right. back on product management, you you spent time uh, doing social. That kind of got you exposure, um, got you some really good experience with future potential clients. Um, what what ultimately led to you going into product? I think you. So you did graduate school at the University of Utah. Was that kind of part of that that process, or was that just something? Was another goal in, you had in life? 
Uh, that was something that I actually, this is an interesting, inter, interesting fun fact that not a lot of people know about me. It was between uh, business school at the University of Utah or uh, master's in family therapy. I was the other, like I had for a while, I thought I wanted to be a, a like a marriage family counselor. Um, and, and still like, I'm still interested in, like, I, I like to think that I'm you know, a reasonably good listener and that I can help people think through things. Anyway, uh, I, I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I, I knew I wanted to, um, to take that step in about, this was about 2007 that I, I really started thinking about it. Um, it wasn't, it actually, everything just kind of the timing of things really just worked out super fortuitously. Um, I, I, I couldn't have, couldn't have planned it any better. Uh, the I, I started at the University of Utah in my MBA program uh, long before even the well not long before but a, a few months before the social media thing happened uh, that was not something I was thinking about and and I didn't go to business school to become a product manager I, I went sort of just generally because I, I I knew that 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 would help me in my career uh, both in terms of opening doors and also um, you know networking in a part time MBA program is not really at least in my part-time MBA program was not really a thing. So the networking wasn't a huge factor, but just, you know, having an MBA, being able to speak the language of finance and accounting and strategy and marketing, I, I thought would, would help me um, generally speaking in my career. And so I, I did that beginning in 2008. Um, social media thing uh, happened at the very end of 2008. So I think December, I think it was exactly 10 years ago, actually, like it might even be 10 years ago to the day that I joined Twitter. Uh, not the current account that I have, but the the what was the Omniture Care account back in uh, back in two thousand eight, and then uh, finished MBA school in in twenty ten, and it just so happened that at about the end of two thousand nine, uh, Jeff Jordan, who I, I just mentioned, um, tweeted out that they were looking for a product manager to join the Adobe Analytics team, um, and it ended up being I don't I'm not I'm actually not super familiar with how it worked out this way, but it ended up being a you know, Adobe has some um, some positions that are that are exclusively for recent graduates, either of undergrad, you know, of uh, undergraduate bachelor programs or or master's programs or PhD programs, and uh, this happened to be one of those. So it it worked out perfectly that you know they were like the by the time I got through interviews and and um, and worked on a transition plan for me to join the product team. Uh, my, my MBA program was ending and I was able to just slide right into product management as, um, as my MBA program ended. So that's, that's the mechanics of how that went down. That's awesome. Um, I, I would love to hear, cause I, I, we, we get kind of a, a small glimpse into the life of Ben that you share on, on social, which is, is great. Um, but I think we, we get to see like product managers in maybe three different realms. You're, you're either getting yelled at because people think something sucks. You're, you're getting praised because people are truly enjoying and getting value out of the product. Um, or you're out talking about it at conferences, um, talking with customers. I know it's way more involved and complex than that. So, so what's it like to be, be a product manager at a, a huge enterprise brand like Adobe. Wow, there that is there are so many ways to answer that question. Um, all of the all of the three things that you mentioned are a, are a huge component. Personally, I, as you would imagine, I I tend toward uh, 
obsessing on the negative. So when, when people say, Hey, this thing about your product sucks. Um, I take that a lot harder than I take a, than I, than the benefit that I get from people lauding the product, um, which is just, I think my own personality and, and other product managers might be different. Um, you know, what it's like, I think is, um, is an opportunity to be empathetic, like to, to, I'm, I'm trying to think even where to begin here. Like the day to day is just, is crazy. It's, there are no two days that are the same. The interesting thing about product management that I didn't have a full appreciation for when I joined this team. And this I think is true uh, anywhere, whether it's B2B or B2C product management um, enterprise versus, you know, SMB. I think, I think this is common to pro- to the discipline of product management that you are sort of at the crossroads of the entire organization. It's a, it's a unique position in the sense that you're plugged in to just about everybody, every other team in the organization, sales, marketing, um, engineering, obviously, design, um, accounting, finance, um, support, training, consulting, whatever departments you have, there's some role for product management to either train people on new stuff or to help come up with how something, how you're going to go to market for a, a product or a feature. Um, oftentimes, you know, coming up with a, like building a successful product requires collaboration between all of those groups. Um, if any one of them fails, then you're at risk for, you know, you're, you're at risk to lose customers or to lose opportunities. And so product management is kind of the, the sinew, the, the, um, cartilage or the, the tendon that holds, holds all of that stuff together in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, you might go from, you know, talking to, uh, the finance team about, um, you know, how our, how our next quarter looks like, uh, to, or how our next quarter looks to talking to our sales team about um, their motions and how they how they talk to customers about an upcoming uh, product or, or feature to working obviously with engineering and, and design to take the customer problems that you've learned from your interactions with with brands all over the world and turn that into product um, and and so you know it's it's really hard to like product management is is notoriously hard to define. Um, Some of that is because it's different in different places and in different industries, but a lot of it is just that, um, you know, ultimately your, ultimately your, your job is to take customer problems, feel empathy. Like that, that's like the number one, I think if I had to say number one product management skill that's required, it's the ability to empathize with, uh, with your customer and with uh, the market and then turn that into solutions. Everything beyond that seems to depend on what you're doing in product management and, and what kind of a company you work for. Right. And I, and I think that that's what makes it so challenging in that you can have all of those operational pieces of being a product manager down pat, but there's still a whole other piece that you need to add to it in that not only do you have to be able to manage all of these conversations and relationships and map you know, problems to solutions, you also have to have really, really deep domain expertise in the products that you're building for. So, you know, that's a layer on top of how, how do you like have the time to, to like hone <laughs> all of those different pieces that required to be a good product Dude, manager? You, you don't like that. That's the thing. You don't, I, I, I don't. And this actually, this brings up an interesting topic that I know we've tweeted about in the past. And that is that I don't feel, I mean, so I don't have a side hustle. Right. Like I don't, I don't, there's nothing I do on the side other than join this podcast. Um, there's nothing that I do on the side. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not, 
like I've talked to some other product managers about it and we're like, you know, I honestly don't know how I would do that. Like I don't, there's not really an opportunity to go home at the end of the day. Like you're, you're so consumed by like, by the, the problems that you're trying to solve and the business that you're trying to grow inside of a company that um, the, the thought of doing something else is, um, you know, and that isn't to say that like, I have no work life balance. Obviously I watch a ton of sports. I play with my kids. Um, I do, I do a ton of stuff, but um, it's, it's tough. Like it takes a lot of focus and a lot of effort to, to hone all of those skills. And it doesn't leave a ton of time for other professional pursuits, at least for me, I, I maybe I'm doing something wrong. I've also heard people say that good product managers shouldn't be busy. So <laughs> I, I could very well be a bad example here. I, I, I just don't know how that's, that's possible. And I, th- I think there's, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think there's I a, a big overlap with, you know, running a business because all of the things that you mentioned are also key to running a business. You can't just be really good at, your domain expertise, you have to have all of these operational pieces on, on top of it. And you just try to, to keep ahead and you, you can't, you can't keep up on everything. It's very difficult. And, and I think probably the same with being a great product manager is you learn how to strike that, that right sense of balance. And I think that's just kind of part of the creativity is that, you know, you can't consume everything. So what's the right balance so that I can create the right products for the right people it sounds incredibly difficult, but in the end, probably incredibly rewarding. It is. It's definitely rewarding. I mean, I'm and I'm I'm actually interested uh, to hear if you're if you're prepared to talk about it, how you think about that. I mean, that's like to your point. It is, it is running a business like that. That at least um, for me, and at least the way that we do it, or the way we think about it on on the product management team for Adobe Analytics, we think about it. You know, obviously, like we don't, we're not. Like there's this whole thing, by the way, CEO of the product, which is which is half true and half not true, and I won't get into I won't get into the details on that unless you're interested to hear it. But um, like you're not actually like you don't you're not the CEO. Um, you actually are the CEO. So I'm interested. Like we have kind of a, a microcosm or a, like a kind of a niche version of, of running a business and having to balance those things, you're actually having to do it. You have an actual company um, with employees and, and, you know, you're in the numbers, you, you, you know, what your, you know, what your growth goals are and, and so on and so forth. How do you, how, like, how very practically do you balance those things? Not, not very well, um, but it's something. Oh, whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, self, self, self-deprecating Jason. It, it's, it's incredibly hard. And I would say in the beginning, um, it was a lot like just getting thrown in the deep end and just trying to fight to keep your head above water. And, and I think the default position that keeping your head above water is, is just doing what you, you do well. And that's where I focused for so long is, you know, I can execute at a high level, I can create great relationships with clients, and I'm just going to focus on that. But at some point in time, you have to take a step back and say, well, there's a lot more that I need to be doing, how am I going to strike this balance? And, and for me, it took a couple things. One, it, it took just me accepting that I needed to be much more deliberate in how I frame my day, my week, my month, um, because in the beginning, I, I literally just went in and wherever kind of the, the winds pushed me, that's what I did. Um, so, so taking a step back and realizing it's, it's okay to kind of design what my, my time looks like. And, and that was the biggest help, um, of all is just that mental shift to sit, go from just being 
haphazard ad hoc and everything I do to to trying to be more design focused in in how I, I face my day and my week. Um, but another big thing was realizing what I was good at and what I wasn't good at from an execution standpoint. I, I always tend to have the vision in my head. Like I know where I want to go. I know what the top of the mountain looks like. It's the getting there. That's the hard part. And there are some pieces of that journey. I'm really, really good at. There's some pieces I'm not good at. And there's some pieces that I just hate doing and learning to identify where I had those gaps and aligning with someone else and offloading that work. Um, with the vision in mind saying, Hey, here's where I want to go. I struggle with this piece. Can you help get me there? Uh, was, was massively important because I just felt overwhelmed trying to do it all myself. And then knowing that there were pieces I hated doing and knowing there were pieces I just wasn't good at, wasn't helping. So being able to delegate with the vision, um, was, was able to free up a lot of my time. That's interesting. I, I definitely, I've had to learn, to do like that's that's delegation is not something that comes naturally to me um and i i just tend to like i tend to prefer to get stuff done not because i can do it better but i'm i i hate uh the feeling of making someone else feel like like i'm just terrified that people are going to think that uh he just doesn't want to do it like he could but he doesn't want to he's just giving us you know, he's asking us to do the things that are hard so that he doesn't have, you know, and, and like, it's such a, it's a, it's a, it's an irrational fear, I think, but I've had to learn, I've had to learn how to get over that a little bit. It's not something that I came into product management knowing how to do. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a struggle for, for a lot of people. And, um, I, I, I don't know if there's specific guidance or training on, on how to do it with, with me is just, I, I failed a lot and, and, and then each failure, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to do it a little differently next time until I started to come up with some kind of cadence that, that work, but it's still hard. I mean, I think we both like to feel in control as well. And it's, it's hard to give up that, that control, even though logically, you know, in your head that this is going to get you to where you want to be. It's still hard. It's hard to take your hands off the wheel in, in some of those, those cases, but you know, going back to that list of things that you put out and say, look, as a product manager, I have to be involved in all these things. There's really only one way to do that. And that is to be able to delegate something so you can spread yourself across all of those different touch points. So let's, let's pivot a little bit um, and kind of talk more analytics as a product manager. We've kind of stayed high level. I would love to kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you're seeing in the future. Uh, I'm sure as part of a a product manager, it's both understanding what clients' needs are, but also sometimes you have to tell clients what they need. So, you know, how do you, how do you inform yourself of that? And what, what do you see uh, in the future um, in the digital analytics space? Yeah. So my mind goes a few different ways. The most interesting trend that I have spent time with is the movement toward um, cobbling together a homegrown digital analytics solution. Uh, and I don't know if I don't know if you guys are are seeing that, or, or I, I would imagine that you're you've got uh, you know enough you're doing enough different work that you're probably probably got a handful of of brands that you're working with who are. Um, thinking about doing that or exploring that possibility. And it's just, it's an interesting, what's so interesting about that trend to me is that it changes the skill set required to be a, a, an analyst, to be a, a digital analyst. Like we've, we, we grew up, um, you know, in quotes, grew, you know, grew up, uh, 
uh, last decade, like over the last decade, right? And and over that time, um, the industry, like a, a, we've talked a lot about data democratization and the idea that um, you can go into a tool like Adobe Analytics um, or really any of the, the tools in the digital analytics world and get some prepared data and you can do some things with that data, right? You can segment it, you can break it down, you can... Um, uh, you can uh, what manipulates the wrong word, but you can you can manipulate that view at least to uh, help you answer a question. And what's fascinating to me is that when we talk about this idea of like a homegrown or, and I don't even mean built from the ground up, but the idea of data data collection. Sorry, I should back up and define this data collection. Um, coming into some sort of a data lake, uh, either in the cloud or in Hadoop, putting a query engine on top of that of some kind, like a Redshift or a Spark SQL, and then having um, a, like a, a usually a BI, an off-the-shelf BI tool um, as a, a front end. Um, what you're what you're essentially doing, uh, I think, at least in in, in most cases, um, is you are uh, trading the ability for anyone in the organization to do to, to do analysis, like true analysis, for the flexibility of your analytics team being able to do absolutely anything, which the tools off the shelf, you know, even even like analysis workspace with its flexibility is never going to be as flex as flexible as writing a SQL query, right? So um, what you end up with is I've I've heard a few uh, managers and directors of analytics say things like we've had to pass up. Uh, we've had to. We've interviewed and had to pass on really talented analysts, people who have an aptitude for understanding the business and and understanding the questions that are going to produce insights that will drive the right conversation in the business. Because we've needed to insist on on SQL skills or or excuse me or or equivalent. And so it, it's like there are a whole bunch of fascinating aspects to this trend. Like one that that it changes the analyst skill set. There are people who, uh, you know, maybe uh, five years ago um, would have been qualified for one of these roles. Who now, like that particular role at that company, may be closed off to them until they uh, develop a set of skills that are different from the traditional digital, digital analytics skill set around you know, understanding the Adobe analytics or Google analytics or core metrics data schema and how to implement it and how to get insights out of that um, implementation um, in a, within a, a, a tool environment. Um, the other, um, you know, the, the other interesting trend there is that it puts, if your, if your analytics team is the one writing these queries in, um, in you know, in, let's say in, in Redshift or in uh, Google BigQuery or whatever it is, um, you're now like the, digital analytics has always been a bottleneck, right? Like there's, there's ne the teams have never had enough resources to do what they wanted to do, even when they were working in um, off the shelf analytics tools, if they're having to write SQL queries and wait for those queries to return and then populate a, a Tableau dashboard, for example, um, to answer someone's specific question. Uh, and then, you know, they, distribute that dashboard to the, to the people who asked for it. And then that those people have follow-up questions. Now it's another SQL query um, uh, and, and a repopulation of that dashboard. And so it just, it changes the nature of that bottleneck. Um, and I think in, in many ways makes that analytics team even more of a bottleneck potentially um, than they have been before, which further reduces their ability to kind of self-govern and, and, and or not self-govern, but to, de to determine the areas of strategic analysis that they want to focus on, which is another thing that we've been hearing about for 
know, as long as I've been in product management that there just isn't enough time in the day. So that's like, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And it's a fascinating discussion because I, I think there's a couple of different places you can take it on. On one hand, I, I, I agree. And it's always been my frustration with digital analytics as a whole, if we're kind of taking it to a, a higher level is that a lot of times when we've hired for those roles, we've we've hired what I've I've called kind of glorified tool administration administrators. They're really good at working with the tool, but they lack kind of the depth and analytical knowledge to go deeper than that. Um, and so I don't think that's a tool limitation. I think it's just a mindset limitation where where people really need to push themselves to grow their their analytical skills to be to be stronger analysts. With with that said. Um, you're right. You know, we see this interesting trend where where businesses want these more complex ecosystems, but we see it layered with the fact that there's still a, a major lack in inv- of investment in people. Uh, you know, we still see large corporations that have one, two, maybe three people on the analytics team, and and you're asking them to do more and more complex things, and it's it's really really difficult to to keep up with that. It's it's also interesting from a democratization of data um, conversation, back when I was running analytics at Spark Networks, I very much thought the unstructured path where I was in the position to buy an analytics solution and I wanted a solution for me. I wanted full flexibility to query the data however I wanted, to group it how I wanted, to define everything. Because then as an analyst, that that gave me a lot of like comfort that I had that power. And when I went back to the CEO and presented my recommendations, he's like, you're crazy. He's like, we want data to be accessible across the organization. And if you're the only one that has the ability to pull this, then we're losing. And so ultimately, we ended up selecting Omniture because it gave us a better chance of providing access to data more broadly across the organization. Well, and I think think you hit on a a key point here, a key differentiation between, I guess, what we're where we think where we think this is headed and where it's it's been, um, and you, when you talked about democratization of data across the organization, um, I think that that problem to some extent is, I don't want to say solved. Like it, it, obviously companies still struggle with it, but everyone has their BI dashboards, right? Like everyone has access to data now. I think, um, or they can at least visualize data. What I think the future holds. Uh, and we've been talking about this for some time, and I, I think there are people who agree more or less with this idea. Meaning, like there are some people who probably don't don't agree with this. But um, is democratization of, of analysis and letting people like there's a big difference I think between your you know uh, company overview Power BI dashboard that shows how you're you know how you're tracking toward your quarterly revenue goals for for Q4 and the ability. Like there's, that's a thing, but then there's the, the, the ability for uh, any arbitrary person in the organization, an executive, um, a director of, um, you know, the call center, a, uh, you know, a digital analyst, et cetera, to be able to ask the next question of that data. And that's where I feel like the understaffing um, is, uh, is such a huge problem because those views of data, like that, that democratization of data is not designed to let someone ask any arbitrary question. That's what SQL is really good at. Um, and uh, frankly, I mean, I, I think that's like part of what makes, um, you know, so I, the most rewarding thing I've done as a product manager was be a tiny part of the analysis workspace um, product development uh, 
um, over over the course of the last five years. And and um, that's what analysis workspace. I think I think that's the opportunity for analysis workspace to be a thing that is you know eighty or ninety percent of the value of of SQL. Um, plus some things that are very specific to our space, like um, uh, pathing visualizations and things that are really hard to do in SQL, um, but available, like it's something that, you know, is not, it's not as we would like to make it more accessible and make it easier for, uh, you know, those people that I mentioned to be able to ask that next question of the data than we, than we have done to this point. But uh, it's certainly closer than putting them in SQL and it, it, uh, it also, you know, it affords them an ability to ask that next question arbitrarily that they don't have with uh, and with a you know a BI tool that they're putting on top of their data. So yeah, and and I yeah. think that that's the beauty of analysis workspace um, is that it it strikes that that balance in that you can always go completely unstructured, but the, you you have to start from from pretty much nowhere. What analysis workspace and tools like it give you is someone has thought through kind of the most common types of things that you want to do and given you basic structures to build with. Uh, I, you know, I think it's the difference between like giving a kid a, a set of Legos with a bunch of different connectors and pieces and giving them just some raw pieces of plastic and say, okay, go build this into something. You know, you're starting with something that's been a little bit more thought through and uh, for the larger population that makes it much easier to, to start and start exploring and finding insights. And I, I imagine it's incredibly difficult to strike that balance, but you, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have complete flexibility and also give things that you can just start with to, to start building. Uh, what, what's kind of the thought process that you have gone through as and you continue to go through as you kind of mature that product, which by the way, it has been, a phenomenal meteoric rise in like the the early beta versions to what it is today. It's just uh, I am continually impressed with with the direction of that product. Well, thank you. I I, um, I, I will share that with the team. You you you've seen me tweet at the team uh, when when people. Uh, give compliments. I, I really honestly feel like I was just along for the ride and have been really fortunate to be part of it. It's been, it's been awesome to see so many people in the industry who I respect, um, you know, practitioners all the way up to, you know, what we would, what we would eye rollingly call thought leaders probably, um, uh, refer to it as, as a really powerful analytics tool. And, and like, that's, that's been super rewarding. The thought process um, is, I mean, I think there are a few ways that we think about extending what we've done with analysis workspace. Um, one is simply that data analytics is hard. Like it's for a lot of the people that we want to reach, um, it's, it's hard. There's so much nuance in the data. There's so much understanding of the implementation that's required. And it's, that's a really hard thing to, um, design a product around, um, you know, I think there there are some there are some things that we we could do to standardize. I mean, we did some things with templates that make it a little bit more standardized. I don't I don't think that's enough. Um, the there are always going to be custom things that uh, that organizations are going to need, and and that we're going to that they're going to need to create. And I think you know the fact that. Um, the fact that BI exists probably probably proves that. Um, I, I think, though, that there, um, 
at the heart of every kind of of every person who who goes into an analytics product, an analytics front end, uh, not SQL, but you know, a, a tool like Analysis Workspace. Um, I don't know how many tools like Analysis Workspace they are out there, but I, I guess I can tell you for Analysis Workspace, um, some of it is just simply that that the the broader organization is full of people who need data in order to do their jobs, in order to do what they're trying to do for for their customers, uh, but who don't like the fundamental building blocks of analysis are not super clear. Like, what is a dimension? What does that mean? I remember being new at Omniture in two thousand six and. Like kind of intuitive. Like I mean, I had done sort of like you know, I, I had done I'd done an analysis things before, but I never really thought about how I would define a dimension and a metric and how those interact and how to work with them in the right way to tell the story that I'm trying to tell. And I think there's a lot more that we can do to help uh, people who are new to analysis to to understand the fundamental fundamental building blocks that are not unique to Adobe, you know, or Omniture or, you know, Google or whatever. Like it, it's, these are just like when you want to work with data, you know, when you're, when you're running a SQL query, you still have these concepts still exist. You're just creating them on the fly rather than, um, you know, rather than getting a, you know, dragging a thing over to a table and having it populate from, uh, from a query. I mean, if, if we distill it down, the the APIs that sit underneath Analysis Workspace, they're not using SQL per se, but they're just it's just translating into a query. There's no real magic there. Um, there is magic in our reporting engine, but um, the queries themselves are. In fact, we literally exposed the same API, uh, so you can query uh, our our reporting engine in exactly the way that Analysis Workspace does. If you want to understand what those queries look like, so so a lot of it is just being um, creating a, a way for people to interact with data that that isn't intimidating or doesn't doesn't um, remove some of that burden um, you know and then and then there are a handf- there are a handful of other things but I would say I would say that's probably the biggest thing uh, that that and um, helping make their implementation sort of um, transparent so that they don't you know so, so that people don't have to figure out what's the right dimension to use, what's the right metric, but, but uh, doing a better job managing that yeah. stuff. No. And I, and again, I think you and the team have done a, a phenomenal job with that. And, um, just seeing how, how we use it, seeing how our, our customers use it. It's a, it's an exciting product to follow, uh, as you continue to add more maturity into it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's awesome stuff. So, Dude, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I'm super glad you joined. But before we we wrap up, I, I want to go back to product management and ask one more question because it's one that I've been itching to, to ask and a little bit disconnected from the uh, analytics talk. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, and maybe it's because we're so closely involved in the analytics industry that I see this, but it seems like there are a lot of fanboys, girls, haters in this space, question number one, in talking with your colleagues in other industries, do, do they have that same thing where you have a really strong polar opposites of, of people that have thoughts about your product? And then the follow-up question would be, do you enjoy that? Or does is that a real challenge in your job? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I, think, I think that's a thing that... Uh, has some differences probably between B2B and B2C. 
Um, one of the interesting things that, that I've observed is that um, B2B software struggles to some extent. Like what's, what is an amazing B2B software experience that you've had that's made you just, that you just love using this? Pro- well, actually, you know what? I can think of a few that you probably love. Here, here's what I'm getting at. Um, people doing their jobs, like for a lot of people, you, you're a very passionate person. Uh, Jason and, and and Jim, you you are as well. Like you you guys, and I'm I'm the same way. Like we we get a lot of uh, fulfillment and satisfaction from doing our jobs. A lot of people, I think, aren't that way. It's a nine to five, right? They're they're um, they have to use Salesforce.com, or they have to use Adobe Analytics, or Google Analytics, or they have to use SAP. And so there's this interesting dynamic where like people who use say. Um, you know, I'll just pick on Twitter or, you know, pick your favorite workout app, uh, uh, Strava or uh, Map My Run or Map My Fitness or whatever. Like people are using those apps because they want to be using them. They don't have to be using them to do their job. And so you end up with this weird customer satisfaction discrepancy between B2C and B2B. That's just the nature of people not like not everyone wants to be at work all the time. Not everyone wants to be. And so you get these complaints that, um you know, that may not come up in a, a B2B con- or a B2C context or, or haters that uh, are frustrated about other things or they're, they're, they're frustrated because someone's making them use a product. Um, and so it, it's kind of interesting in that, in that regard. I know it's no, not no. quite what you asked about, but that does, there's like, it's, it's just, it's something I've observed and I've, I've asked a few people in other industries um, on the B2B side, if they have observed that in their interactions with customers and, and it seems to be a pretty consistent theme. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, so so they do. So absolutely, especially in the B2B space, you've got, um, there are haters, there are people who just just despise Concur for submitting expense reports. They just hate it and they will tell you how much they hate it and they'll tweet about how much they hate it. Um, and like, it seems to be a theme uh, <laughs> in their in their lives or, or they, they had to implement it somewhere and that was such a terrible experience that they, and I don't, I'm picking Concur. Sorry, that's not to throw shade at Concur. I actually don't know. I just, I picked a, a random B2B software package. They, Concur might have amazing customer, uh, amazing customer satisfaction numbers. Um, but then in terms of it, it bothering me um, or, or how I feel about it, like, I've had to learn. I remember I had a I had a, an interesting. You you remember this? I think you you might have been involved with this. An interesting, let's say, conversation with Evan Lapointe back in maybe 2011 or 2012, um, where his point, which I think is actually totally valid, is that it can be really easy um, as a product manager. Um, you, you pour your heart and soul into building these products, and you want to see them succeed, not just because obviously that's good for your company and for your career, but because it's your baby and you've built this thing and you, you want people to love it. And, um, it can be really easy to spend too much time with the fanboys. And that was what Evan accused was accusing us of. And I think, it, I think it's a completely, completely valid point. Um, I don't know if we were doing that at the time, but his, like the essence of his point is completely valid that you need to make sure that you're listening both to the fanboys. You want to, you definitely need to hear people say, um, and what was the one I heard one, um, I heard someone just the other day, uh, said something and I'm not going to remember it off the top of my, off the top of my head, but I'm just talking about how analysis workspace had made their life easier and had put time back in their, in their, in their, 
uh, on their calendar so that they could could pursue other things. And like that's super rewarding and you need that because it's what keeps you going and sustains you. But you also definitely need to be talking to and listening to the people who um, who think you're terrible. Um, and, you know, but certainly like I wouldn't sit here and tell you that we don't have those people. Um, I th- you know, every every software company has has people who uh, don't who don't like their the product or the direction or, or um, whatever it is. And so um, I've, I think we've, we've gotten really good at, at, or at least I've gotten really good at, at making sure that I'm, and, and this social media helped teach me this, that I'm um, listening patiently, uh, not trying to prescribe a solution to a problem before I've heard the problem fully. And that's where a lot of your empathy comes from. Like I, I love talking to people who are passionately upset about, our product for some reason, because there's a problem there. There's a, there's a reason that our product is not helping that company grow. And that's an opportunity for us to, to, to solve something for probably for many brands. Um, you know, even for those who are, are super thrilled with their, with their, with the value they're getting. So yeah, it's, it, it's hard. It's hard to hear people say that, that they, they don't like your product for some reason, but it's important. And it's, and you also just have to know that everyone is hearing that every product manager, at least on the B2B side. And I'm sure on the B2C side as well. Um, and that's just, that's just life as a product manager. Jim, I totally dominated the, uh, interviewer chair. Um, so I'm going to give you a chance to ask a question or two before we wrap up. Yeah, no worries. Um, this has actually been just fun being, you know, a a listener in this conversation, just hearing you guys go back and forth. And I'll get to that in, in a little bit as, as we get near the end. But Ben, I actually had two questions and they relate to the, the, the same the same thing. And it's related to, to focus and acting deliberately. The, these are things that Jason and I talk about frequently, both on the podcast as problems we come across and just you know, offline as well. Um, keeping focus, uh, acting deliberately, intentionally on, on what you're going to do. So in my time in the digital analytics space, one of the things I've noticed is it's definitely a space that falls victim to the, the shiny object syndrome. Um, it, it, people love to jump to what they think is going to be the next big thing. Uh, but many times, not always, but many times it, it's a distraction. So as a product owner, as someone who's setting the long-term strategy goals of the product, how do you keep focused and ensure that, you know, what you're focusing on is truly the, the direction it needs to go and not necessarily a shiny object? Uh, great question, uh, Jim. And I, I don't know that there's one, there's one way to do this. I mean, I, I can talk to you about kind of my, my thinking on it. Um, my, this actually is right in line with my very favorite product management quote, um, which actually comes from a non product manager per se, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who said, supposedly I haven't validated it, but it's either way. It's a, a great quote. Supposedly he said, you will never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's really like, so, a big part of product management, at least uh, at Adobe and, and I, I think at, at, at most other places, is product strategy and figuring out what you um, what you want your experience to be in three to five years. Um, and, and that even like when I say experience, I mean like we we've gone through the process at times of of just writing down 
um, here's what we want customers and users of the product to feel and to be saying um, to themselves when they're using our product three years from now. Um, and, and there are many ways to develop a product strategy. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the only one. There's, there are a num- number of other inputs that go into that. But, but we, we basically say, like, you know, here's, here's what we want to be. Um, there's always, there are always going to be some things that come up. There are always going to be needs that are unanticipated. Look at, you know, if, if we had done a, um, if we had, had created a product strategy in 2014 for digital analytics, uh, we would never have, in, like, we wouldn't have been thinking about GDPR, Right or the or or other privacy. I mean, privacy was starting to become a thing, but but we certainly couldn't have anticipated GDPR and how important that would become to brands all over the world. So there always are going to be those things. Um, some of that is honestly just assessing uh, the risk. You know, the the risk reward. Um, you know, GDPR was one that the the penalties are so severe um, that you know we, we were uh, for for the for the brands that, that were trusting us with their data. If we, if we weren't helping them be GDPR compliant, we were not going to be, we, we were not going to be able to do business. And so that, that was something that obviously you, you look at your product strategy and you say, you know, we, we can't, we cannot, we truly cannot afford to not execute on our plan for GDPR and privacy legislation. So like, so that's a thing that happens and that's definitely going to happen. Um, beyond that, um, it, it really is just it's up to each product leader, I think, to have um, to, to have a, a it's up to the product team to have a shared vision. Um, and, and, you know, our my leadership at Adobe has been really good, I think, at at making sure that that we all know where we're headed and and that, you know, we, we know what we want to be in three to five years. Um, we know what we want that to look like. We know what we want it to look like to buy Adobe Analytics in three in three to five years. And if we share that vision, then it's really it's it's relatively easy to prioritize um, how we're gonna how we're gonna go about it. Um, you know, we've we've got a handful of we've got a bunch of product managers on Adobe Analytics, and um, I think that they would all um, tell you that you know that they're they're because we know what we want to be. Um, it's it's just easier to, to keep that that focus. Not that there aren't things that come up, but we can always go back to: is this in support of our our vision and our product strategy to achieve that vision? And if it is, then then great. Then we have that conversation. But it's it's you know that's still within that realm of focus. If it's not, then we refer back to Winston Churchill. And I bet you that that quote is probably going to come in with my. You know, the second related question, which is, you know, something you said earlier in the conversation, you, know, you say like with your role, you're at the nexus or a nexus point of the organization between creative marketing, technology, all of that. Um, but you're also a major feedback point for customers. You're hearing the positive feedback, but then you're also mm-hmm. hearing when people rant. Um, how do you keep yourself focused and not dive into the weeds with every you know, every major complaint that, that, that comes your way. That's really, that is tough. Um, because, um, I think part, so part of what you're getting at is that is a skill I've had to learn, which is to say no. Um, and I'm still learning myself to, you know, to, to be honest to say, yeah, right. Right. And part of, part of that probably relates to my inability to, or my having to learn how to delegate, but, um, in some, in some areas, um, to say no, but to be empathetic in saying no, 
right? Like it's, I don't think we're ever a good, a good product. I, I hate the, actually I hate the phrase good product manager, but uh, I'm going to use it anyway. A good product manager is never going to be callous in, in saying no, right? Like it, it's, um, if, if someone is just livid about something that they need the product to be able to do, and it just doesn't do it, and it's not in line with our strategy, and it's not something that helps us achieve our vision, so we're not going to do it, I can still feel empathy. Like I can still, I'm trying to think of a good example of something that we just are not going to do that someone has just demanded. Um, and I can't off the top of my head, but uh, but I can still I can still acknowledge to that person that their their pain is real like what they're trying to do it's a valid thing that they're trying to do and i can even maybe put into context for them like here's here's what we're trying to do and here's why like here's why we want to do it in this way and here's and that's that's because of that approach we're not going to be able to prioritize this thing that you are that you're really pushing for um but I can always say, like, look, I totally get it that that because you can't do X, um, it's affecting your ability to deliver on whatever it is that you're trying to do, and and um, you know, and and also offer to continue to like to look out for that. Like, if we hear that as a theme from you know fifty other uh, users of the product, then then maybe there's something there that we missed maybe there's maybe it does relate to our vision and our strategy somehow and it's worth it's worth revisiting so like it's not you know i mean and that's and that's genuine too like that's not just us pretending to have empathy like we it's painful when we hear that because we because you can't do some certain thing um you know it it, it has some actual business impact and and we like that's painful um we feel that pain along with you and we just can communicate that and that's that's often the best we can do that's a you know it's great to hear because um, it, it's something that I I struggled with with for the longest time me personally you know letting my inbox kind of rule my day and it's something over the last couple of years I've been proactively working at is is not letting the the loudest person dictate priority but actually kind of setting that in in, in such a way that. Um, you know, clients get it. Um, and so I, I love to pick people's brains about that, especially with someone like in your position, who's going to hear all of those complaints and how do you stay above it yet still work to, to address them? Yeah, right. That's, that's the, that's one of the challenges. It's one of the, one of the lines that we, that we walk. Well, I mean, th this conversation has been awesome, and I I've loved it from just uh, from a listener's perspective, just sitting back and listening as, as we recorded it. Um, so as we wrap up, I just want to tell a little story, because for, for me, th th this conversation, it's, it's, um, it's kind of related to a goal that I set years and years ago. So it was about 10 years ago, I was going through a career pivot. I was moving from implementing uh, financial reporting and investment software into digital analytics. So as I was uh, cutting my teeth and learning everything, any kind of question I came across, if I Googled it, I came across content from either of you two. And after a while, I'm like, I need to go find a way to work with these two guys. Um, it would be a ton of fun to do that. So here we are 10 years later, the three of us sitting down to have this conversation, record, record this podcast episode. So, uh, I mean, to me, it, that's it, awesome. it's definitely something, uh, personal, you know, involved with it. 
That is that is awesome. I this has been so much fun. I'm uh, thank you for letting me rant and rave and and probably hog the mic for uh, for a bit. I would love to do this again uh, sometime once I've once I've um, like once once you guys can no, tolerate this, me this again, I'd, I'd love to come back. Yeah, I, I told Corey when we talked to him a little while back is I'm going to bring the mic out to the summit with me in, in March and we'll do something in person. So we'll try to get uh, a nice little group together. Yes. Uh, and, and in person round. That would be, that would be amazing. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah. I'd, I'd love it. I'll be, I'll be awesome. there with bells on. Thank, thank you, Ben. I mean, seriously though, this was an amazing conversation and we, we, we hit on a lot of really, I think informative topics, uh, but also just entertaining topics. I, so I appreciate you, you joining and, um, yeah, we would, we would love to, to have you back on anytime. That would be my pleasure. Awesome. So thank you very much. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap up for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at www.33sticks.com. The 33 Tangents podcast is a production of 33 Sticks.